You may be seated. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Beginning of that chapter is where we're going to start. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. We are working through the book of Mark, which is a gospel. And that is, it's a particular kind of book in the Bible. It's one of the books of the Bible where we have eyewitness testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so what we have when we're reading Mark is we are watching someone save us. We're not learning how to save ourselves. We're not learning a new philosophy. We are watching someone else do what we couldn't do. We're watching Jesus save us. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading in Mark, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 20. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was sitting beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil, rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, sorry, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. Would you bless the hearing of your word as well? Each of us would be inclined to ignore, be hardened against this, every single one in this room. And Lord, we pray that the gift of your Holy Spirit would be given to each of us to give us ears to hear, Heart softened to believe 
and to treasure what you say, to be warned by your warnings and comforted by your comforts. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage begins in a a very interesting way. What does Jesus say in verse 3? He says, listen, and then he says, behold. So this double, double listen, behold phrase. It actually sounds, if you look at the, the, in the Greek, which is originally written in, it sounds a lot like one of the most famous passages in the, in the Old Testament, where the Lord says, where the Lord is speaking to Israel and says, hear, O Israel, a very important thing. God is grabbing their attention, grabbing them by the cheeks. You could say, you must hear this. Hear what I'm saying. Maybe the way a parent would grab the cheeks of their toddler and say, Listen to me, and the kid can hear them, obviously, because the kid has ears. But that's not what the parent is meaning, is it? No. Listen. Let this get through your ears, into your brain, into your heart. This question seeks, or this passage seeks to answer the question why is it that some people, why is it some people love the gospel and some people hate it? Why do some fall away when trouble comes? Why do some fall away when good things come? And the bigger question is, actually, once we know the wickedness of sin, why is it that there's anyone who believes? And why is it that anyone endures? And this passage is given to us that we would examine our own hearts, to examine our own faith. Because this is one of the passages where Jesus talks about people being in the kingdom and people being outside of the kingdom. To see if we're truly in the kingdom of God or simply maybe around the kingdom. We're amongst the people who are the kingdom but not inside it. This is a passage where God graciously gives us this warning, this description of those inside his family and those outside his family. Our first point is this, the gospel is a mystery to those who are outside of the kingdom of God. We're going to get that from 9 to 13. The gospel is a mystery to those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Let's read 9 to 13. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus here quotes from the Old Testament, the calling of Isaiah where God calls him to be a prophet to Israel. And he tells him that you will speak the word of God, the beautiful, plain word of God, and they will not listen. They'll hear, but they won't hear. They have eyes, but they won't see. They have hearts, but their hearts will be hardened to this, and they will not turn. Now, last passage we read in Mark 3, one of the major questions was, who are God's children? The same question is being asked just a little differently. Who is in God's kingdom? We see here in other parts of scripture as well that the gospel is a mystery which is clear. 
Now that sounds confusing, Derek. Don't say confusing things. Well, the gospel is a mystery, which is also quite clear. There's actually no confusion for anyone who has ears to hear what God has said to his people, to his people Israel, even before Jesus came, during the time when, Jesus, when, when God was prophesying about Jesus coming, during the old covenant, there was no confusion for anyone who actually was listening, paying attention to what God was saying. It's very clear that God was the creator of all. That's not confusing. There is one God and he has created all things. It's also not confusing that humanity has fallen into sin and become rebels and enemies of God, not just in action, but also in heart. It's not confusing also that sin brings the judgment of God. God is a good judge. He is a just judge. And that means all sin incurs a punishment. We're under condemnation for our sin. This is incredibly clear. There's no confusion about this. What's also clear is that the the laws of God that are given in Scripture, they expose our sin. They show that all of us are sinners. Those who have the Bible, those who don't have the Bible, those who have heard of the God of Israel and those who have not, all of us are sinners. They show that we are guilty. This is very clear. And yet what's also clear is that God has promised to save a people. Very clear. From the very beginning, as soon as we fell into sin in Adam and Eve, the first thing out of God's lips virtually was to say, I will save you. I will send a Savior who will save sinful people. Very clear. What's also clear and has always been clear is that if you're going to be saved, it would be a gift from God. It won't be something that you've earned. It will be by grace, means undeserved, not by works. Not confusing. There's no confusion here. It's very clear. And also that there is a Redeemer who would come from heaven to save God's people. And that that salvation would be received by faith. That has been incredibly clear since the beginning. And even now that we know the Redeemer's name, his name is Jesus. It's clear. And yet it is a mystery. Why is it that this very clear gospel is a mystery to some people? Where it is spoken to them and it's like bouncing off of their face and they look at you as if you're speaking a different language. How does our heart make the gospel a mystery? Because it's on the receiving end that the unclarity comes. The gospel's clear. It's on the receiving end that the mystery is happening. The Bible notes a few different ways. The first one is that a confusion comes from no desire for having no desire for what the gospel offers. This is confusing to people where the gospel, the gospel offers something that nobody actually desires. And so it's kind of confusing. It's, it's as if you're offering somebody free rat poison to, to eat. Well, this is going to be great. They, you must be talking about something different. I know you wouldn't be actually offering me this because it's the last thing I would want. And this is why the gospel is a mystery to Many people, to most people, because with the gospel, you're not just offering forgiveness of sins. You're offering reconciliation with God. But their hearts hate God. It's the last thing they would want is God. And so you must be talking about something else. So they're assuming that even though you're telling them the gospel, they're assuming you're talking about something else. 
And this is why we have the confusion of something called the prosperity gospel. Rampant in our day, the prosperity gospel is that you're not just offering salvation. You're not just offering a reconciled relationship to God. You can be forgiven of your sins and Christ paid for that with his death. So you can be God's child. No, now you're offering also health and wealth. Oh, because that's what people would want. Well, now, okay, you must be offering me a better marriage, better finances, and better doctor's appointments. The gospel is often a mystery to people because it's offering something they would never want. And so they assume you're not actually offering what you're saying you're offering. You can be reconciled to God. Oh, you mean I have more money? No, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, you you mean I'll have more pleasure? That's actually not what I'm saying. You mean I'll live longer? I'm not offering that. The second thing that the Bible exposes as something wrong with our heart that makes the gospel mystery to us is the confusion that comes from assuming you're already in the kingdom. When you preach the gospel or share the gospel to somebody about how you can get into the kingdom of heaven. You can be saved from the kingdom of darkness. You can be rescued from Satan's team and be taken into Christ's team. There's this confusion. We're like, because they assume, everybody assumes, I'm already on God's team. So you must be talking about something else. Oh, you mean like improving my relationship? No, not improving your relationship with God. Actually beginning a relationship with God where you're his child rather than his enemy. This is very common This was common. This was the problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. He's preaching the gospel to them, and it's like bouncing off of their thick skulls. Why? We're already in the kingdom. What are you talking about, us needing a savior to get in the kingdom? We're in the kingdom. What is this you speak of? This is also true with liberal churches in our day. Everyone's in the kingdom, they teach. There's no one outside of the kingdom. This brings us face to face with LGBTQ groups as well who are were promoting that the church embrace these things. Well, of course, because everyone's in the kingdom. There is no sin. God has already treated everyone as his child, and the gospel says no. Every sin, every deviation from God's word, whether that's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, all of these things demonstrate that we are enemies of God and we need to be rescued rescued. The first confusion is is having no desire for what the gospel offers, so that confuses people. Second is the confusion of assuming that you're already in the kingdom. And the third is the confusion of assuming that the gospel is like any other religion. It's like a typical religion. Every other human-made religion, every man-made religion teaches that you can achieve salvation if you do it. You can work to gain this. If you keep God's commandments, oh, then you will. You'll gain gain eternity. You'll gain God's pleasure and God's favor. Assuming that the gospel is like a typical religion. Now, the parables help those who desire the gospel understand it better. The parables help those who desire the gospel understand it better. But the parables of Jesus further confuse those who do not desire the gospel. It's very clear here. That's the distinction. Those who desire reconciliation with God, 
who love the gospel, it makes the gospel more clear. But those who do not want God, who do not desire the gospel, it, it makes them more confused. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. But it's not just the parables that are parables. Did you notice what Jesus says here? For those outside, verse 11, those outside, everything is in parables. He's not just saying the parables are confusing. He's saying everything of the word of God is like a parable. Everything is gibberish to them. And we need to see here that this knowledge is given. We need this. Every single one of us would be in the same position of hearing the gospel but ignoring it. Hearing the gospel and assuming we're talking about something else. This is the miracle and the gift of God. Did you notice it says to you has been given? Verse 11, he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. You wouldn't believe in Christ if Christ did not give this gift to you. He has given ears to hear and eyes to see. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Or you cannot see, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. And if God gives this to you, you are saved. This is what he says. If you would have these ears to hear, if you would have that heart believes, you you would be saved. And God needs to do nothing to prevent somebody from seeking salvation. God needs to do nothing to keep somebody from seeking salvation because no one wants it. Because it's not merely guilt that we need to be rescued from. It is. But what we need to be rescued from is a heart that is so against God. Our hearts so against God that if he were to show up in the flesh, do miracles in front of us, and then offer his own life to take our damnation, and then rise from the dead, we would at best look at him like, he's, we're, like, he's confu- like we're confused. And at worst, with hatred. And this is the people that God has given to Christ as his bride. Those with hearts that bad. Hearts that hate him so much. And yet he has betrothed the church to Christ before the foundation of the world. And there was an agreement between God the Father and God the Son that he would pay for her wicked heart. But he would also have to give her a new heart because she will not want to be saved. And he does this. Dear church, not all things will you understand in Scripture equally it will make sense that some things are quite a bit harder to understand than others. And you will also not understand things as well as when you're, you're brand new to the faith and when you're 250 or 2520 or 50 years into the faith. You will understand things better over time. But the major question, the main question is, do you know the gospel? Is the gospel... Yes, some things in Scripture are more confusing, especially when you're just starting out. But is the gospel clear to you? When we are out evangelizing on the street, very often we bump into people who call themselves Christians, members of churches, and we'll ask them, oh, great, then you can share the gospel. Tell us the gospel. 
most of them will say, I have no idea. And those who take a stab at it will mostly say, the gospel is the Ten Commandments, and if we obey them good enough, we get to heaven. And oh, by the way, God's name is Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. But these people were in in church their whole life, and they still think that this is the gospel. So dear Christian, brand new Christian, ancient Christian, what is the good news? The good news is that enemies of God have been reconciled to him by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in their place. Not as an example, in their place. He did it for us. He did it instead of us. He lived the life we should have lived, counted it to us, died the death we should have lived. God's counting our death, our sin against Christ. He's punished and damned in our place, and then he rises from the dead. That is the gospel. It's simple. Christ got what we deserve so that we could get what Christ deserves. Christ is treated as an enemy, as we deserve, so that we could be the children of God. The smallest amount of real faith will save a person. Baby faith will save a person. Jesus compares it to the smallest seed that was known to Israel at the time, grain of mustard seed. The smallest amount will do. Do you have this faith? Not do you understand all things, but do you understand this gospel? Do you hear the word of God when it is preached? When scripture is taught, do you hear it or is it kind of like the adults speaking in the peanuts? Is it interesting to you? Do you assume that it will be good for your soul? Do you fight fight through it when it's confusing and, and you're distracted? The chewing on it is part of how we glorify God. Seeking to understand it is not a sign that you don't belong. It's actually quite the opposite, that you're working through it, you're you're struggling through it, you're asking for help, and you're sticking with it. Another question is, could you summarize this parable? These are things that the Lord works in his people. Not that they would understand all things, but they would understand the gospel. And that when the word of God is preached, it can correct them. When the word of God is is preached, it can warn them. When the word of God is preached, it can comfort us. When the word of God is preached, it can delight us. And that is a gift from God that you would not have if he wouldn't give to you. Our second point is this. Some never show interest in the gospel because of their hard hearts. Let's look at this in 14 and 15. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. All right, so the gospel is the seed that God is talking about here, Christ, in this parable. The gospel is the seed that the sower is sowing. He's spreading the gospel around. And we see here that there's a bunch of different results, but the problem is never with the gospel. The gospel is the same gospel in every single case. The question is, which heart is it going to land in? And there are some who never show interest in the gospel because their hearts are hard. 
Now, being uninterested in some things is not a moral failure. If there's some things that you are not interested in, it's not wicked that you're uninterested in them, right? If you're uninterested in soccer or uninterested in knitting or anime, it's not a moral failure, all right? But there are some things, if you're uninterested in them, it is a moral failure. If you're uninterested in your children, that's a moral failure, If you're uninterested in your parents, a moral failure. If you're uninterested in your husband or your wife, that's a moral failure. But especially to be uninterested in God and his offer of reconciliation is a moral failure. This is a moral thing, being uninterested in God. That means that we are called to repent if we're uninterested, this is, a, this is a sin that you can be forgiven for and rescued from. If this is you, if it's always been bouncing off your head or bouncing off your chest, showing no interest, this is something that you can repent of. Pray to the Lord that he will give you this interest. Confess it's sin. God, I know it's sinful. What a fool I am. The greatest treasure is being offered to me and I cannot care. Forgive me for this. Take responsibility for this. Well, it's on you, God. If you're going to do this, you're going to do this. No, it's sin. I have to own this and ask that the Lord will help you. He promises that if you seek, you will find. If you ask, you will receive. If you ask with desperation, knowing it's actually the only thing that matters. You can't ask as if you just don't care. Take it or leave it. God, if you want to give it to me, give it to me. If no, not. No. Recognize this is the thing you need the most. Ask him for it, and he promises to give it to you. We can repent of being that hard path. And God will grant us that. Our next point is the next seed that is thrown. Some show interest, but when trouble arises because of the gospel, they fall away. 16 and 17 is where we're going to find this. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution on account of the word uh, arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What do we say about people who have temporary faith? Right? We all know people who lived as Christians for a while and they turned away. What I want us to notice is that the soil did not change. Did you notice that? Those who turned away did not start with good soil and then became rocky soil. There was a problem from the get-go. It was never true faith. It ended the way it did because of the way it began. Did you notice that? They fall away because of the heart in which it was sown into. And how is that heart described? You could say, using some other words of Jesus... It was a heart that did not count the cost. Now, it was with joy that it was accepted. Somebody preaches the gospel to them. They accept it with joy. Many would love to have the most powerful person in the universe on their side. Do you want to have the almighty God be on your side? I kind of would like that. Many would like help, might like God's help fixing finances, marriage, or addictions. Yes, I'd like that. Absolutely. 
Many would be like to be, would love to be on the right side of society. I'll be a Christian if that helps my business prospects, if it will help my children marry well. Well, I mean, I don't want to be a pagan. I don't want to be a heathen, of course. I'm a Christian. I'm not one of those bad people. I'm a good pe- people, or I want to be one of them. I know that was poor grammar. But it's a heart that doesn't count the cost. It's flippant. But you know, there often is a cost to being a Christian, isn't there? Not a price. There's a difference. God is not asking you to pay a price. Earn this. But when persecution arises on account of the word, others will, alt- others will often give us an ultimatum where they will say, you can choose between Christ or money. You can choose between Christ or family. You can choose between Christ or career. You can choose between Christ or freedom. You could choose between Christ or reputation. Oh, you can be a Christian, but that means everybody's going to treat you like you are scum and as you are vile, dangerous person that people need to be rescued from. And when this happens, your heart is exposed. A person's heart is, is exposed as being the same heart that never actually responded to the gospel in the first place. Because you never did see that though you are counting the cost, the cost is not even close to being compared to what you gain. Imagine comparing a little bit of money with being the child of the God of the universe, a God who is holy, 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 a God who is infinite in love, that his love extends to the heavens and his righteousness is like the mighty mountains. His faithfulness endures. Imagine comparing a few years in jail to an eternity as that God's child. Friends, I would encourage you to count the cost. The cost will never be too great. God is infinite and loving. He is the greatest. And often when people falsely accept Christ, they do so without understanding how wonderful God is in comparison to the things they might have to give up. Our fourth point, from the next seed, some show interest when good things come, they fall away. Some show interest, but when good things come, they fall away. Let's read 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. as far God's word. These people turn away, but not because of threats, but of competition for attention. Other things, good things, did you notice this? Even good things. Those are the things that your mind gravitates to instead of the word. You cannot care, but it's not because of the cost. It's just because other things matter more. You're dedicated to thinking. Your heart is set on enjoyment. And so you have less and less toleration for the word of God. Less toleration for preaching. Maybe a a better church with less preaching, that's going to help you. That's the reason you're having a hard time. Or maybe a church that's going to talk about things that interest me, like money or sex or career or health or entertainment. I want less and less priority on the word of God. Less and less priority on church. Less and less 
priority on fellowship. If there's other things, if I'm double booked between worshiping God with God's people and other things, clearly those other things are going to have to come first. I mean, I'm not, I'm not legalistic, you know. So if ever hockey or hobbies or relaxation double book you with the word of God, the things of God, the worship of God's people, obviously you're going to have to, we're going to, you know, God would understand. None of these things are bad. But they will try to become priorities. And the people around you, the people in your life, the people in society who don't know God, they may make your participation in these things dependent on you sharing its importance. I'm joining a chess club. I'm not. Imagine you're joining a chess club. I just like to do this as a hobby. And everybody else who's interested in chess in this chess club, like, well, you have to make sure it's a priority or you can't be part of this chess club. Well, let's, we, we play chess as, with, as, as often as we can. It fills our schedule, fills all of our free time other than work. And we, you know what? If you want to be one of the elite chess players, you have to play chess during the Sunday worship service. Well, I mean, obviously I got to play chess other than the worship service. God is going to understand. You see how this works? The, the, the world is enslaved to good things. And they cannot understand how you wouldn't make a good thing your priority. So parents, are you teaching your children that a Christian is someone who prioritizes other optional enjoyments over the word, over church, over worship? This is a problem that this passage is pointing out to us. The word of God is often crowded out by good things that God has made, but which become ultimate things, and we can't see them as less valuable than the word of God. Let this be a warning, friends, because you may be here and be uninterested. You may be here and assume you are a believer, and maybe you are. And this word of Christ is going to call you to be careful Perhaps you are actually not a believer and this finally gets you to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. To see if you have that which is most precious. Faith in the actual gospel. That it can warn you. It can correct you. It can comfort you. It can thrill you. It can get your attention. Our next point is this. Only God softens hearts truly embrace embrace the gospel and bear fruit. This is our final verse, our final seed. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 60-fold, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Thus far, God's word. The seed of the gospel is sown into good soil in this regard. And we already know if it was good soil, Christ had to do a miracle in that. Because all of our hearts are hard soil, bad soil. The path, in fact, we had to be miraculously transformed so that we would receive the gospel. We see that Christ is the greatest treasure. And he is also our greatest fear. 
and you are grieved that your sin is against God. You're not only grieved what, about your sin is going to do to you and is doing to others, but mostly the thing you hate about your sin is that it is against such a good God. And you have seen that there is nothing greater than to belong to Christ. There's nothing greater. You've counted the cost and you see that there's nothing that would be worth avoiding Christ. And dear Christians, there, there are rocks and weeds in Christian hearts as well. And Christ preserves you by rooting them out. He sustains you. He proves he saved you even through letting you experience persecution to demonstrate you are really mine. You have the kind of faith that is true and it can endure persecution. There's also weeds that Christians experience. We experience temptations. We have good things that often turn into sinful things because we make them our priority and we treat the gifts of God as if they were God himself. And the, and the way we deal with that is not by asceticism. It's not by saying, well, we've got to make sure we don't do anything enjoyable. We need to make sure we don't have any good things because those could car, that, that could uh, crowd out the gospel. No. The Bible tells us the way to avoid the weeds, to fight the weeds. These good things, these interest in other things, is by receiving them with joy. When there are good things that are available, available to you, you thank God for them. You worship God for these things. God, this is wonderful. I don't deserve, I don't even need this and you've given this to me. How wonderful, how rich are you, God, to give me these wonderful things. It's also important for us to take a look at how we treat good things. A good thing has become idolatrous, an idol, when you're sinning in order to gain it or sinning in order to keep it or when that's the thing you're constantly thinking about, even when the word of God is being read, when the church is singing, when the church is praying, oh, you will be tempted this way. But can you turn? When you are distracted thinking about that wonderful thing or that terrible thing, can the spirit of God, oh, Lord, Forgive me. Help me to focus. This is the work of God in you. And did you notice that these seeds grow and they bear fruit? Did you notice that? And the success of this fruit is astonishing. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, what is this meaning? There's, there's really two meanings to this fruit being so productive. And the first is the success of the gospel. That's the first thing, the success of the gospel through a very small group. The gospel was, was preached, first of all, to a very small group. But look at the fruit it has borne. The church now extends to every corner of the world. But the other thing that this fruit is talking about would be the fruit of the Spirit. Turn to Galatians 5. Let's look at this fruit that is being born in people who truly have been born from above. Those who are in the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. Those who have ears to hear the word of God, the gospel, and believe it. Galatians 5, verse 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Dear Christian, do not believe that you must do great things for God in order to be a Christian. These verses, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit here, are not all that impressive to anybody other than God. This is rich and beautiful fruit when he sees this in you. He's not asking you how many churches you've planted. He's not asking you how much money you've raised for Christ. He's not asking you how great your social media following is for the Lord. That's not the fruit that 30, 60, 100 fold is what he's looking for. He's looking for this. Peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I got lost, but you see where we're going. These things are rich and beautiful fruit. Things that you can exhibit in whatever station, whatever vocation God has called you to. If you're in school, studying for a career, if you're in your career, if you are a a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, taking care of children, no one sees you, but you're exercising gentleness and kindness and self-control and joy and love in the home and only God and the angels can see you. This is the kind of fruit that he sees and is talking about here. That is impressive. That is incredible. That is lovely. That's the kind of things that he'll grab an angel and say, I want you to see that. That person should have been a hard path where the seed bounced off of. But look what happened. She's supposed to be an enemy of mine. And look what, look what my son did. She now loves me. My word can comfort her. It can warn her. It can encourage her. It can sanctify her. When she's distracted by good things, it brings her back. When she's distracted by difficult things, it brings her back. And oh, doesn't that look like my son? I gave her the same spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. These are the fruit of the spirit that are most pleasing to God. And we can cultivate them. By truly comparing the costs of Christ. Before persecution comes, we should look at it and think, what is the worst they could do? Would that be worse than losing Christ? What is the most they could give me? Would that be more than what I gain with Christ? Count the cost and you will see that it is not greater than whatever Christ would give you. We can cultivate this fruit by thanking God. By praising him from the heart for all the good things he gives us. Rather than running away from good things because they might turn into idols. And also by examining our use of good things. And the question isn't, am I enjoying this too much? No. But is this causing me to neglect wisdom, love of God, love of neighbor, love of the word, love of church? I'll close with these words. The need of salvation is greater than any of the world's religions tell us. The alienation between God and mankind is much greater than any other religion would indicate. 
But in the gospel, we see the mercy of God is greater than any other claim for any other religion. It is one thing for Christ to have died for people who made some mistakes, but in the end were good in heart. You know what? Good intentions didn't always follow through. You know what? I, I did things that weren't good, but I, you know, I didn't really know any better. No. That's one thing if he would die for those people, but he didn't. He died for people who were at heart enemies of his. So much so that if he stood in front of them, did miracles, proved he was God, died for their sins, rose from the dead, they would still hate him. And such would be all of us. The power of God is greater. The power to convert a person, to give ears to hear, hearts to believe. Not to believe against our will, but to give us a new will. And this should lead to only humility and thankfulness for our conversion. God, why did you save me? Thank you. But this should also give us confidence in evangelism and dependence upon prayer because God can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Even people who look like they are the hardest path, the gospel bouncing off of them in a moment, God could give them ears to hear and they be converted, trust in the gospel, and be reconciled to, his, to him through his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we too would be like the people who continue to ignore the gospel and in fact hate it. We would be exactly like them if it were not for you and the grace that you have given to us. We thank you for the ears to hear. And Lord, we, we confess that we have neglected even this ability, even those who have the ears to hear, we often don't use them that way. Who have the heart, who have been given the heart to be able to delight in the things of your word, and yet we're often more interested in the things you've given us. Lord, forgive us for that. Would you cultivate in us a heart that loves you and your word, that prioritizes it, that thanks you for good things without using them as idols? Lord, would you cause this to be a church, each one of us, a church that would endure through persecution, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but because, Lord, what can they do? What can they take from us? What can they give to us? Lord, you are the greatest treasure. And to have you is to have all that we need. And Lord, I pray that you would do these things in us. In Jesus' name, amen.